Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Matter of the Heart, where we bring you heartfelt, encouraging, positive stories, all to elevate your spirit. And I'm your host, Carol Olivia. I wonder, listeners, did you ever think that words have power? We're always talking, speaking, but do they have power? Can kind words from a friend elevate your spirit? And how can humor shift your mindset so that you look at life, your life differently? And how can a doctor, a physician, nurture you with positive, encouraging words when you are in a health crisis? And does the word hope from a doctor versus a statistic from a doctor comfort you more with challenging health issues? Our guest for the show is Dr. Bernie Siegel. Dr. Siegel, or Bernie, is a retired surgeon. He is the author of the worldwide best-selling book, Love Medicine and Miracles, 365 Prescriptions for the Soul, which I highly recommend you to just open up any page, any day, and read the beautiful messages and the wisdom of the messages. How to Live Between uh, Office Visits, Peace, Love, and Healing, but so much more. And I know Bernie's coming out with a couple of more books in the near future, but all of his published books are on uh, www.berniesegelmd.com. Bernie, the power of words. Yes, ma'am. Years ago, when our kids were in grade school, one of them walked in the door carrying this canvas you know, on a frame. And what it said on it <clears throat> was the word words filling the whole canvas. And what hit me because of what I was trying to do and to help people, because I always say to people, write words, W-O-R-D-S, W-O-R-D-S, W-O-R-D-S. And what do you see? And you notice it becomes swords, swords, swords. Now, this canvas, he maybe it's, say, two feet by four or five feet. I mean, the teacher didn't know what he was doing, you know, in this art class to do that. But when he brought it home to me, yeah, I knew what he was saying, that I could kill or cure people with words or a sword. You know, if I took your hope away, you're going to be dead in three weeks. Um, no, we're not going to pay for you to have cataracts because you have cancer and you'll be dead in six months. So we're not going to spend the money on you. Um, those are people who went home and, and died. Their hope was taken away. Um, and the other side of the coin, of course, is see, I can pick up a sword and cut out your disease. And a sword could be a good thing. You know, call it a scalpel if you want. Um, so both the swords and the words, uh, you know, have two options in a sense of how they're presented and how they're used. And that's still hanging on the wall in our house, but it just taught me a lot. And I don't think it was a coincidence in the sense of his doing that. I think it was part of the consciousness of our lives and our families for that child to do that. Um, and I keep sharing that with people. Uh, and yet doctors, well, let's say if you're a surgeon, you're trained how to use a knife. You're not trained how to talk to somebody. They, we don't have a class that oh. says, this is how you should tell a patient. Because there's a form that we get as we're, when we're medical students to learn. See, what's your chief complaint? What's your present illness? What's your past history? What's your family history? Um, what are you allergic to? What diseases? You know, it's just information. Uh, it, it's never, see, your chief complaint doesn't tell me about your life. You could say, my back hurts. Hmm. 
or I have breast cancer. Um, but that doesn't tell me about you and your life. And the present illness also is, you know, I felt the lump three months ago. Then I went, that, that's like history. But as Jung said, it's not the patient's story. And the way he put it was a diagnosis helps the doctor, but it doesn't help the patient. Well, there the key thing is the story and it alone shows human background and human suffering. And only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. But you see, he's a therapist. So he sees it, he saw it that way. But most oncologists don't see it as, I need to know the experience and the story so I can really help you. You know, I always say these ads, that you see. I was depressed. I went to see my physician. He prescribed the antidepressant. I feel better now. That's what the ad literally said from this drug company. I wrote them. I said, excuse me. My house burned down. My family was killed in the fire. And the doctor doesn't say to me, why are you depressed? What's happening in your life? He just says, here's the pill. I said, could you just put a line in that says by the doctor, Tell me what's happening in your life. Then he prescribed the pill and I feel better. And they never answer me and never change their ad. See, it's all mechanical. I'm sick, I'm okay, here's the pill. Here's your diagnosis, this is what we treat. They're not treating people, they're treating a word and a disease um, and not the person's experience. Because what I began to see, well, what changed my life, I always say I changed my life, but but I realized how inadequate my training was as a doctor to be caring for people. So when one of my patients said to me, you're, this is an exact quote, you're a nice guy, I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. Okay? And what I found was, of course, and the patients are the ones who taught me about how to live, but that if you taught them how to live, they didn't die when they were supposed to. Because what was happening is, and again, psychiatrists, I'll explain this in a minute, more, know more about this than the medical doctor. Um, because what I learned was there's a pattern to people who exceed expectations. And again, if you get, your disease disappears, and nobody can explain it. Do we give you any credit? No, we call it a spontaneous remission. But I learned it's not spontaneous. It's you going home to enjoy the time you have left in your life and noticing that you're not dead when you're supposed to because you're enjoying your life. I mean, I have quotes from people who one letter ends with, I didn't die, now I'm so busy, I'm killing myself, help, where do I go from here? Another, when I called to say, how come I wasn't invited to the funeral, the guy I thought who died hadn't died, he answered the phone. Oh, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die, because he moved across the country to where he wanted to be when he died. Uh, you know, buying a house on the ocean, getting a dog. I mean, these are just things people started to do and leaving their troubles to God. I mean, these are all quotes from patients. Uh, I'm gonna make the world beautiful from a landscaper. Um, he said, it's springtime, I'm gonna go home, make the world beautiful, I'm not gonna have any more treatment. So when I die, I leave a beautiful world. He lived to 91 and became my teacher. Um, yeah, the, <laughs> I'm laughing because six years later, he showed up in the office and I said to the nurse, you must have given me the wrong chart, he's dead. And she said, open the door. So I opened the door and there sat John. I have a hernia from lifting boulders in my landscape business. He never died. And part of why he was gonna die is he was retiring. He was losing meaning to his life. And that's what you find, not just psychiatrists knowing, but poets and authors, because they watch life and then they write about it. They, about cancer, W.H. Auden. Childless women get it, and men, when they retire, it's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. It's a poem called Miss G. And I, I can tell you, in our cemetery, 
because uh, I walk the dogs there at times. Um, there are two stones, a husband and a wife. The husband stone talks about all the wonderful colleges he went to, you know, like Yale and Harvard and all this, and um, about the businesses he ran. And then it says, retired. A year later, he's in the ground. Uh, interesting. His wife outlived him by decades. Right, right. There isn't a damn thing on her stone about what a wonderful person she was and all the things she did and where she went to college and, you know, what a wonderful mother. Nothing. Just Mrs. So-and-so, born, died, and she outlives him by decades. Why? Because, yeah, the women are into relationships. I mean, I've had guys sitting in my office with their family sitting next to them. And they said, there's no point in living. This is more than once from men. Exact quote. There's no point in living. I can't work anymore. And I would say, excuse me, what? Look to your left. I think there are five reasons there. Because he had his wife and children sitting in the room. And then I look, it was like I'd taken a mallet and hit him in the head, you know, that there's something more to life than going to work. And right. it's sad, you know, I've had a lot of children uh, when, you know, when they're going through an illness, uh, complain that their father doesn't pay any attention, is busy working, busy not helping them. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. So these words obviously are so powerful for healing. Uh, Bernie, what does the healing, how does it affect the immune system then? Uh, a doctor that's really not even thinking about the word statistic, somebody has, we'll say, stage four cancer, but is simply encouraging them. What is that doing? Well, in many ways, uh, Monday, I always say, explains it all. We have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses on Monday. You wake up Monday morning saying, oh, hell, I got to go to work. I hate it. I mean, I'm so tired of this. Uh, yeah, my feeling is your body does you a favor. Say, well, I'll have a heart attack, and then you don't have to go to work for a while. I mean, your body isn't really thinking in that way that I'll do you a favor, but it's saying you don't like life. So what happens? Immune function goes down, stress hormone levels go up. Let me say it in a simpler way. There was a student down in Florida, um, who told his professor for his, you know, graduation thesis, um, he wanted to do a study of emotions and body hormonal changes in immune function. And his professor said, what difference is it, will it make? He, but he said, well, I'd like to do it with some actors and see what happens. So the professor said, all right, I think it's a waste of time, but go ahead. So he got a couple of actors, male and a female, he gave them two scripts and one was a comedy and the other was a tragedy where the man murdered her husband and they read the scripts and he drew their blood while they were participating in the script reading. And of course what he found was the comedy immune function went up, stress hormone levels went down. The tragedy was the opposite. Stress hormone levels up, immune function down. So again, you see that this is not just about feelings. It's about your chemistry, your body, the message it's getting. See, identical twins, if it were just due to your genes, well, they should get sick the same week. Right, right. You know? Right. But when one kid, and if you ask an audience, you say, I've got identical twins. Who's more likely to get breast cancer? The sweet little girl who's always making mommy and daddy happy or the little independent kid who's doing her thing and doesn't worry about whether the parents are happy. And everybody votes for the independent kid, see, because she's taking care of herself and the other one is giving up her life to make mommy and daddy happy. And so... This is a big part of it. I mean, we're all mortal. We're all going to die. This is about, not about guilt. See, if you get sick, oh, it's my fault. I didn't say that. It's that we participate in our health. You see, women with the same cancers as men live longer. Again, it's back to relationships. 
I can't die till you all married and out of the house versus I can't work anymore. So the women have more reasons to be alive um, and that changes them and their chemistry. Um, but again, as I say, it's not about blaming people. It's about getting them to look at their lives. You know why? It's hard to not keep telling stories. Your parents want you to be a lawyer. See, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. What is that saying? You are losing your life to make your parents happy and not be rejected by them. You become a lawyer. Years later, you develop cancer. Right, right. You do. You become what you wanted to become. Right. Your parents didn't want you. You become a violinist and you get a job in an orchestra. And a few years later, you notice, I didn't die, you know? Right. And why? Because you really started to live, playing the violin and enjoying yourself. And, and let me just add one more quote from someone with AIDS who expected to die. And she said, I put a, and this is years ago before treatment and so forth. She said, I put a sign on my refrigerator. When you live in your heart, magic happens. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's Simple. And of course, she didn't die when she was supposed to either. Live in your heart. You see, there were people who went from HIV negative, I mean, HIV positive to right. negative. Right. Uh, even when in prison, because I was helping a lot of prisoners, it was when they started helping other prisoners and not just thinking about themselves, they noticed they benefited because their immune function was stimulated. They, their life had meaning. And that's what we have to realize, that when there's meaning in your life, your body tries to keep you here as long as it can. And when you get tired of your body, as I say, yeah, there, there's a time when we all need to leave, when it isn't fun being in it, you know, if it ages and you've got problems, fine. You can say enough is enough and I'll turn off the switch and I'll be perfect again and leave my body. You know, that's interesting about the lawyer. Um, Bernie, I can't help but think that that quote, that uh, disease was really not so much to me a disease, but a, a big, almost like a messenger, a yes. lesson for him to really be who exactly who he is. It was almost like a blessing or a salvation. Yeah. Let me, some more quotes that one day I was sitting on a stage with Louise Hay helping people with AIDS and a young woman in the audience got up and said that she had an autoimmune disease. And Louise interrupted her immediately and said, who do you need to express anger at? And she immediately answered, my mother. And that surprised me, you know, where that question came from, the quick response. But what I learned again, yes, yeah, certain diseases will go with certain emotions because if you have this anger inside, it's like you're attacking yourself. Day. And I met this woman, she started coming to my office, who had what's called scleroderma, where your skin hardens and your, your internal organs all harden. And she told me about her life and she had alcoholic parents. They literally told their children to commit suicide, that they didn't love them enough to care. The parents committed suicide. And she said, I'm the only one in my family who survived because when I tried to commit suicide, I didn't do it right. My parents were mad at me. Um, now, the, I didn't know, you know, have any magic uh, to provide her. But what I realized was by listening to her, I let her get her rage and anger out. Right, right. What and, and listen to her scream and rant and rave. Uh, and at times I got fed up with it, you know, just saying to her, you know, why all you do is come in and scream and yell. But I began to realize it's emptying her out, letting it come, and then she'll know. And this is a quote from her eventually. When I let love into my prison, it changed every negative item in it meaning the experience in my life, and turn them into something meaningful. Oh, that's Now, did she lie down and die when she was supposed to? No. She outlived her doctor. I mean, she became my therapist, joined our support groups, because, 
I mean, the, the change in her, the spiritual nature, the willingness to love, um, it was just amazing. And uh, she went on, as I say, for decades after she was supposed to die. And yes, eventually did, as we all will. But what an incredible person she was. And she'll never be out of my memory. Uh, I still have letters from her where she wrote those words, you know, about letting love into your prison. But the same was true years ago. I started reading books written by concentration camp survivors. And in a sense, they were saying the same things. The ones who helped the other prisoners were more likely to survive. You know, all, I mean, because they're all being starved and abused. Right. And But if you said, you know, I'm gonna, not going to eat my meal today. I'm going to give it to my, you know, prison or cellmate. Um, those were the people who were more likely to survive because they were doing for others. And then they benefited. Um, one that, again, all these stories pop into my head, but, oh, and two things. One was, her name was Susan with scleroderma. I said to her, show me a picture of yourself as a child so I can show you, you know, that you're a beautiful person. And she said, I have no pictures of myself as a child. My parents were real estate agents. You want to see the house? That, imagine, not one picture did they ever take. And in the concentration camp, I remember this, that a train came into the camp and the guard said, this is going to a work camp, you know, making it sound like it would be better, no gas chamber. So one prisoner said to the other, look, you're sicker than I am. You get on and go, I'll stay. And off the train went. And then they learned it was going to a gas chamber. Wow. But his action saved his life. I mean, yes, he felt terrible that he offered somebody what he thought was a gift, and it turned out to be a tragedy. But still, he was alive because he was offering something to somebody. If he only cared about himself, he would have died. So that's probably one of the biggest lessons of our lives, uh, Bernie, for uh, meaningfulness and survival, and maybe that's what we're here for. Yeah, we are. Thank God talk to me. Right to help me with my book, No Beginnings, No Endings. Life is a cycle. And when I say God help me, I hear voices. And the basic message was, if you think of a definition of God, mine is not some person sitting somewhere, but loving, intelligent, conscious energy. All those things are necessary for creation. Okay? Uh, I mean, none of what we experience could have been created if there wasn't intelligence behind it and love um, and energy. And what God told me is every time a creature is born, I insert a part of myself into that creature. So you have the loving, intelligent, conscious energy in you. And I'm looking for you to be my instrument and my tool and help spread that around the world. So for me, that's my definition of God. Uh, and if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you bring don't bring forth will destroy you. So to me, what is satanic, it's not bringing those gifts forth and helping the world and other people. They, then you become as they say, like the devil and your twin sister could be an angel because of what she's doing and you're only interested in yourself and storing up all this, so you become the devil. And to me, that's how I now define it. Um, and, what well, we all need, and let me say this, why I say it's a circle because when our body dies, think of the description. I had a near-death experience when I was four years old. So I know it, but um, choking on a toy so people understand. Um, but when people say, oh, I had a near-death experience and I went back to this beautiful light and, you know, all the things and that they met, uh, right. you know, dead family members and things right. like that, especially when it happens to children and they come back and tell their parents all these incredible things. But, 
it, what happens then? You go back to the loving, intelligent energy, become part of it. And that when another person is born in the future, or even an animal, you can become a part of their consciousness. And that's why we talk about past lives. You have an awareness of a past life. I'm not saying that, that you know, it's you having 17 different lives. It's the consciousness. Because we are not our bodies. You realize that when you leave your body. You know, when I would talk about almost choking to death in, in my bed with the, you know, with the toy, I talked about the kid lying on the bed. And I used to think, why didn't you say me? You know, because instinctively as a, as a child, I felt that wasn't me. You know, that was a body dying, not me. And then you realize, you know, what we all need to understand that the body is our instrument, our tool. Uh, yeah, some of them are defective and not working right, but it's again, how you use it. I mean, think of Helen Keller. She's deaf and blind. Right, right. You no, know, why don't you just go and die and stop? No, she teaches the world, graduates from college. Uh, incredible. They, and, and she, you know, you said, if God put these things in us, she didn't say there's guilt involved. It isn't that God gave me an illness, but she looked at it more as discipline, as teaching, you know, to learn from her troubles uh, rather than the satanic approach of uh, you're an evil person, so God gave you all these troubles, all these diseases. If you were a, a good person, God would No, it, it's, you know, God isn't sitting around picking people out. Um, disease is a loss of health. See, just what we talked about in the beginning, you have a self-destructive life, knocking yourself out to please everybody and be a good girl or a good boy, and you get sick. You lost your health. And what does the doctor and your family need to do? Help you find what you've lost. Right, right, That right. came from Maimonides, I think 900 or more years ago, when he said, you know, disease is not punishment. It's a loss of health. And the Bible says, if you find what your neighbor lost, return it to them. So we should be helping people find their health and their authentic life. Right. With, with, uh, he, with was, he was put into a concentration camp with his community. Mm -hmm. And of course, he has people with heart disease, diabetes, cancer, all these things. And he expected everybody's just going to end up dying. We can't do anything for them. They were all told if they didn't work in this camp that they were in, they would not be fed or they would just be assassinated. And he said he couldn't believe what he saw happening. The people with the will to live did not end up in the infirmary or did not end up, you know, being assassinated. Uh, because they had that will to live and their body responded and all their diseases stopped being a problem. They didn't need to be treated. They, they survived. And, you know, for a doctor to write that, yeah, because now he's seeing it in front of him. You know, years ago, if I gave him that lecture saying, you, he said, oh, that's crazy. That's not scientific. What are you talking about? And I've had doctors write to me and say, I, I, I apologize for what I used to think of you. Uh, and what they were saying was somebody in their family got sick and now they were seeing the benefits of what I had to teach and say. So suddenly they're saying, hey, I'm sorry for what I used to think about you and say, because I see what you're talking about now, because I'm living the experience. And I, I really, if I ran medical schools, I wouldn't let anybody graduate without spending a week in the hospital. And you don't have to be sick, if you know what I mean. I would say to every medical student, we're putting you in the hospital, we're telling people you have some terrible disease, and let's see how they treat you, you know, and what you learn from it. And I know from spending a week or so in a hospital, uh, 
I became a different doctor because I realized what the patients were going through. You became empathetic to them. Yeah. You, you, uh, you felt. And you start to listen. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I used to have um, medical students come to work with me because they were interested in my approach and mind, body, and so forth. And I always remember walking out of a patient's room, and, and this is what was so wonderful. I had a third person who could observe my interaction. And this young man said to me, you didn't answer her question. I said, what are you talking about? He said, the question she asked you, you didn't really answer it. I said, then let's go back in the room. And we go back in and I said, he tells me I didn't answer your question. And she said, he's right. And she repeated it and what she needed to know. Now, if I didn't have a medical student with me, I never would have gone back in there. And I wouldn't have answered my patient's question. I mean, she wasn't, you know, gonna be, speak up enough to say, hey, wait a minute, you didn't answer my question. I mean, see that's survival behavior. I'd say, don't worry speak up, assert yourself. And the psychiatrists, again, know there's survival behavior. They, because when they're caring for people with life-threatening illnesses and they exceed expectations, they realize there's a certain personality to these people. And one more, I sent articles about my work to a medical journal of talking about dreams, drawings, personality, you know, survival, and it came back saying, it's interesting, but isn't appropriate for a journal. So I sent it to a psychiatric journal, came back again. It said, this is appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know all this. It, to me, that's tragic. You go into a doctor and you're chopped into pieces. Right, right, right. You, know, you have an emotional problem. You got a physical problem. Which organ is it? Okay, you go to this guy. Um, we're not treating you as a whole human being. And we need so, to. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious uh, with with that. What you're saying, the whole human being, should even doctors talk about statistics to their patient, especially if it's stage three or stage four? Should they or well, any? Well, they, they can be used. Up? See, if I said to somebody, "Let us use statistics to help us make a decision," right? They don't apply to individuals, right? You know, if one person out of a hundred lives. You know, who's gonna knows who that one is gonna be? See, right. So I would say to people, yes, you have options and choices, right. And I would also get them to draw themselves receiving that treatment. See, that's where the wisdom comes out, right. And literally, when a woman drew the devil giving her poison as receiving chemotherapy, hey, don't go. You'll have every side effect in the book. Right, right. right. The lady draws herself alone in an operating room, a black box, a black table. She's lying on it. Don't have surgery. But when they say, well, I want to go ahead with that. All right, then we have to change your concept. Right. So I would tell them, go home, picture yourself going to the doctor, receiving treatment, no side effects, doing beautifully, and repeat this every day for a couple of weeks. Then they come back and they draw a picture and it's totally different. And then I don't worry about them going because literally, and I don't make up any story I tell you. Um, I got a doctor's walking down the hall. He came to me, he said, I'm feeling very upset. I said, what's the matter? He said, I'm, you know, radiation therapist. And I just did my routine checkup of the machine to make sure everything's in order. And I realized when they repaired it a month ago, they did not put back the radioactive material. So I haven't treated anyone for a month. I feel horrible. I said, are you stupid? He said, no, I'm not stupid. What are you asking me that for? How come you didn't know you weren't treating people? I said, did it ever occur to you that they were all acting as if they were because that's what you told them? He almost fainted. Oh my God, you're right. I thought he was going to fall on the floor. Now, the other side of the coin, see, about our mind. When I always talk about Siegel's crazy patients, I get a call from another radiation therapist. Hey, Bernie. What? I have a patient here who doesn't have any reaction to radiation. So I thought the machine was broken until I saw your name in her chart. 
Then I knew it was one of your crazy patients. So I went into her and I said, how come you have no reaction to radiation? She said, I get out of the way and I let it go to my tumor. Those okay. are her exact words. They, and good. that's what changed the nature of the doctors who used to think I was a nutcase, you know, with these people, giving them false hope. Yeah, can you imagine a doctor telling me you're giving your patients false hope? I said, what the hell is false hope? You know, if I buy a lottery ticket, it's not false hope. I could win. The odds are not good, but it's possible. Right, right. The but they're not seeing it that way. Yeah. Right, the and, positive. Um, all they're seeing is the negative side right. and statistics, and, right. and that kills people. They're, they're, treating the, uh, they're treating the statistic right. rather than the human being. Yeah, because, again, a lot of the doctors are feeling guilty if I can't right. cure them, if I this, if I that. And we're not trained. The suicide rate in doctors is higher than the general population. See? Why? Because of how we are trained and how we don't deal with our emotions or feelings or anything else. Right, right, right. So, you know, I felt like a failure. I mean, I had, a, I mean, I have journals. I'm reading it now, like the 365 next to it, 1996, things I wrote in a journal. And one of the things that helped me was my wife. She was my therapist because I forgot to hide it one night and she saw it on my desk and opened it. She said, there's nothing funny in your journal. I said, my life isn't funny. And then she told me funny stories that I would come home and tell the family that had happened in the hospital. Mm -hmm. But I never put that in a journal. It never stayed with me. It's the pain that stayed with me. And now, yeah, I can tell you this journal from 96 had a lot of nice things in it as well as painful things. But in the 80s and 70s and 80s, when I was struggling with this, um, it was all the pain. And doctors need to have help. And the patients can help you too. It's okay to say, I need a hug. Yeah, and they'll give you a hug and then everybody feels better. Comforting words and, and just, yeah. you said, uh, hugs the feeling, the heart, the heart connection. Uh, yeah. I think that's and very... To ask for what you need. Right, right. And always to look at the rainbow behind the, uh, the clouds. Yeah. The rainbow is harmony. Right. Thing you mentioned that because in Solzhenitsyn's book, Cancer Ward, he describes self-induced healing. Right. Here is an author. And look at the term he uses, self-induced, not spontaneous. And he said it's, the symbol was a rainbow-colored butterfly flooded out of the great open book where these who've been in a hospital, you know, saw that. And the rainbow is your life in order. The butterfly is transformation. And it can be a struggle to get out of a cocoon. But it's all the stories I was telling you when people said, okay, I'm moving, I'm changing my job, I'm this, I'm that. Yeah, they were the, you know, in the cocoon, the caterpillar, and they busted out and became the rainbow-colored butterfly with a harmony in their life and the extended life. So that's probably the wis one of the wis many, as many wisdoms of life, <clears throat> uh, Bernie, and this is, is balance. Yeah. Well, remember, you know, how nature works and the butterfly transformation, we're always transforming. Right. Right. And I guess we transform, Bernie, when you're talking about your, the, the patients with positive words with positive thoughts, with uh, sensitivity. Yeah, you give, see, when you give hope, right. that, that's, you're sharing stories of people who did well right. and what they did. And, and one of the main uh, personality characteristics is you're asked to do a favor for someone in your family or a friend, and you don't want to do it. What do you tell them? The correct answer is no. Right. You know, it's like if I called you and said, hey, could you come over tonight and feed my pets? I have to go out. Uh, and you said, no, I can't. I'm busy. Um, you can hang up the phone. You don't have to feel guilty. Um, but there's, especially nurses, have a hell of a lot of trouble saying no. 95% of them say, yes, I would do it even though I don't want to. But what's that doing to you? Say, 
So you learn to say no and you learn to ask for help too. See, because if you can say no, you can ask your friends and family for help. And if they say no, that's all right. You understand. It doesn't right. mean they don't love you. They have a life and they're busy too. So we, again, giving ourselves permission to live our lives and use our lifetime as we want to use it and experience it, not, you know, what others are imposing on us. Connection. This is the biblical line. There's nothing new in what we're saying. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. See, when you become what everybody else wants uh, to save your life, you've lost your life. But he who's willing to lose his life will save it. So when you become the untrue self, lose that life and find the true life and save yourself. Your self-identity that was given to you at the time of, uh, of creation, right. you know? Yeah. Uh, you might say, with the gift God gave you, right. form in your manner, in your way. Right, gifts and, and we can learn from others. It doesn't mean that, that there aren't some wonderful teachers. You know, a Mother Teresa, uh, as I said, uh, a Helen Keller. I mean, there's so many people who have devoted their lives to loving others. And what a wonderful life they have. Right. And I, that's one of the missions of our, of our lives, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Bernie and Listus, as you know, Bernie, you know, is to um, be compassionate with others in struggling situations and non-struggling situations, to understand their, their heart and their, and their stories, to understand and respect their stories. I had a woman come up from uh, Kentucky, no, North Carolina, um, because her relative, when she, when, the, when she told her relative who lived up here in Connecticut that uh, she was told she'd be dead in a few months and don't even bother to go to the hospital for therapy because you'll just feel worse for the last two months of your life. She said, oh, Dr. Siegel makes people well, come up here. And I learned about this when she shows up. Turns out she had leukemia and I explained to her, I'm a surgeon, so I'm not treating leukemia, but I put her in the hospital and had my oncologist friend go over to see her. And he said, that quote from him, Bernie, I agree with her doctor. There's about two months to live, but I know you and your crazy patients, so I'll give her hope. He wrote that out on a note and, you know, left it for me. Then he started treating her and she left the hospital and started going to his office. And I would get a note every week from him, doing well, doing very well. And by the time six weeks was up, in complete remission. And then his sense of humor, isn't chemotherapy wonderful? Because his first note was, I agree with her doctor, but I'll give her hope. And I used to be criticized for giving false hope. But he learned, hope is real. So six weeks later, she's in complete remission, going home. And I told her, go drive your doctor crazy. If you see him in town, make sure you walk up to him and say, hello, remember me. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful, Bernie. You know, uh, for the closing of the show, uh, Bernie, what would you, what's your, def I don't want to use the word definition, your insight into the word hope? Well, hope, as we said before, is not about statistics. Right. It's about potential. It's about possibility. So if there is a possibility, then, hey, let's go for it. You know, athletes understand this. People who are training know that if you put the effort in, hey, maybe something could happen. Or as I say, I buy lottery tickets every day. Now, what am I going to do if I win? started charity to help other people. My wife died a couple of years ago and I would name it in her name, you know, Bobby's Fund. And we would do things for animals, for children, for nature, you know, all the good things. And that's the fun I have um, to do that. But as I say, it's to help. So I keep buying. I remember one of our grandchildren saying to me, you know, if you invested the money Instead of buying lottery tickets, you'll have more money 10 years from now than if you don't win a lottery. But still, it's fun. 
Right, right. Every morning I can look up the numbers and say, did I win? And let me tell you the numbers I played. Um, we had seven people in our family, but twins, so we have six birthdays. You might have all, a lot of people playing these same numbers, Bernie. <laughs> yeah, well, but all the lottery, you know, lotteries have six numbers. Right. So I play our birthdays, see? And right. my wife is the power ball, you know, or lucky right. ball, whatever. So she's up in heaven. I keep talking to her, and I tell her, hey, fix the numbers. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> and someday, if it happens, you're damn right, I'm going to let the world know right. we have power. Because let me, if you have a moment, let me tell you something. About nine months after my wife died, my heart went crazy in, in irregular beat. Right. Okay? It wasn't a threat to my life, but I knew damn well it's how my heart felt without her. I go to the hospital and she was born on 9-9. I walk in the emergency room. What do I hear them say? Put him in room nine. The next day, we have a room upstairs for you. I go up there. What's the number of the room? 819. And eight is a new beginning. So I knew my wife was saying, you'll be fine. Then they put a wristband on you, you know, plastic to identify you and the event. The number for me that's on every one is an eight again. Then there are two nines, two threes, and two sixes. So everything adds up to nine again. And the other one also would have things like two, seven, two, seven, four, you know, five. Every si I've saved all of them. Every single one can add it up to nine. And let me tell you something else that's really weird. Our phone number is 203. Probably shouldn't say this. Oh, my God. I'm not gonna get too many complaints. All right, but I'll tell I won't tell you the exact order. Oh, yeah. But you know, I said we she had three children and right. twins. So we're in the 203 zone. Now the other numbers add up to our wedding day, 711, and our sixes and threes, so they add up to two nines again. So it, it every single number, even in our telephone. It's like something symbolic. Um, and I never thought about that before until I began to find what I call pennies from heaven and a diamond a penny because we're married on the 11th. Five times after my wife died, I found a diamond a penny in all kinds of bizarre places, cleaning out a bird bath in our yard, a diamond a penny in the bottom of it. Um, you know, those are some of the, and so all our kids, you know, look for signs that we don't lose each other completely. Uh, we lose, you know, the body of the person, but the consciousness is, is still, still communicating. Yeah. It's always, well, we're, we're going to look forward to your, to your upcoming books. Uh, okay. Uh, and I'm sure you'll be back on the show speaking about them. Um, but oh, you won't let me not come back. <laughs> You'll be back in January, Bernie. I'll be back, yeah. Right? Yes. Um, what wisdom from Dr. Bernie Siegel, really amazing, uh, totally amazing, the depth of his uh, knowledge. And um, and let me say to people, yes. try to live the sermon. I mean, you know, I may not be a perfect human being, so I know to apologize if I don't behave properly, but I try to live the sermon. You know, so people know I'm sincere, not just preaching. That makes sense. The words of the sermon. Yeah. Uh, Bernie. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Yeah. Really, and, and what are the, uh, you like to uh, tell us the words? No, um, it, it's, you know, living and loving. Living and loving. Like, I often say to people, if you don't know how to behave, ask yourself, what would Lassie do? They, right. Now, you can say, what would Jesus do? What would Bernie do? Right. Right, and, right, right, right. Then right. focus on that and live that message. Living and loving and, and helping uh, mankind. Yeah. So when I don't like how I behave, I say I'm sorry. Right. People appreciate that. Be truthful for one's words. The power yeah. of the words. This was in my book, 365. I found it very helpful because I keep reading and rereading it because I don't remember 365 things that I wrote. Give what you want. 
Oh, that be truthful. What a sentence that is. I Give love that. You want. Because oh, I, I have given things to people that right. they have never returned to me. And I right. used to be aggravated by that. Right, right, right. Oh, you lend them money, you do things for them, and they never return what they said they would. But if you, you keep being bitter and resentful, who are you hurting? Right. So I've learned to give what I want, and then I'm free from the problem. I mean, let me give you a simple example because uh, my wife and I were in a hotel and the room was robbed and the person opened it with a key. So I know it probably was somebody who cleaned the room, you know, gave a key to somebody they knew who came and stole things. And it was right about this time of the year between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And um, I, I just used to get up so damn bitter because I remember this guy standing in the hallway of the hotel and I thought, how weird. Why does somebody just, right, right. you know, and we get in the elevator and then he robs us. So I knew him and his, I could picture him. And I wished I was back there, get even. And then I realized you're robbing yourself. Look what, how you're spending your time. And then Christmas came and I love what popped into my head. Oh, he stole things from us, but now he's buying wonderful gifts for his children that he couldn't have afforded otherwise. Oh. I suddenly literally found myself smiling, thinking... What a lovely thing we did for him and his family. Oh, that's a very interesting. But then on, right. I was never resentful for the fact that he robbed things, you know? Yeah. yeah, now you could say, well, maybe he went and bought drugs. Yeah, but, you know, that's not what helped me and changed Right. Me. You turn it around into a pot. Yeah. So give what you want. Right. And you'll have a wonderful life. That's beautiful. Thank you, Bernie, so very, very much for your wisdom and your wonderful healing stories that we'll all remember and cherish and um right yeah the only way to be immortal is to love someone right right so the stories we share the love we share that stays with people they don't forget you right that's beautiful and kahil gibran said love has no other desire than to fulfill itself right you know yeah it's a wonderful thing, right? Put it. Thanks. That's why I say it's like God giving us loving, intelligent, conscious energy. Yeah, and I love that concept. Meaning of creation. Yeah, I love that concept. I really do. Thank you. Beautiful. Thanks, Doctor Bernie Siegel. Bernie, thank you so uh, much. We all you. appreciate you. Thanks, Bernie. Thank you so much. You've been me hungry, all the energy that goes into this hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to eat something too. That's cute. <laughs> You've been listening to The Matter of the Heart with Dr. Bernie Siegel. Uh, and I've been your host, Carol Olivia. And always thanks so much for listening. <laughs>